Welcome everybody to the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. It's a it's a beautiful day after so much rain. Did you liked the rain though? I believe I loved the rain. I absolutely yeah. loved it. The fact that you loved the rain helped me be okay in the rain. I'm I'm fine in the rain, but I kept thinking about how happy you were as uh, so yucky and rainy. No, I love the, I love the autumn straight. rain. I love the smell of the rotting leaves in autumn. I even yeah. bought a new autumn coat so I can walk around in the wet autumn. It's lovely. Nice. Well, welcome everybody to the podcast. It's a very special day here on the pod because we have Simon Andrews. And I got to say, I end up talking to lots of folks about First Church and about this moment and about our team and how wonderful everybody is. And the way that I sort of explain our music program, um, which is really big and has a lot of staff and moving parts and it's really wonderful. And I, I explained to people, you know, that we have a great sort of head of the music program that he's full time, which is also really rare and wonderful. And that we have this incredible halftime person right alongside him who could be the music guy in any other church really easily. It's a, it's an incredible incredible gift to have Simon on the team. And what I think is almost as amazing, like musically is beautiful, you know, incredible, the choir direction, everything's really great. But the really incredible thing about both Ian and you, Simon, is that you guys also work so well with the kids. Like that is really, really rare to have this kind of team Mm. that's so strong and that you both works so well with the kids. So anyway, it's a real, real pleasure to have you on. Um, So welcome, Simon. Welcome, Simon. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And (laughs) to have two uh, British guys on just listening to everybody's voices is going to be going to be a real treat, but mostly because of who you are, it just happens to be. But actually, we could start there. So how is it how is it that you land here so far away from where you began? And some people might not know, also the beloved to an a UU minister serving a church really close by. So how do you both land here? How did you get how involved in yeah, how did that music come about, and church music, the whole thing? How how did it happen? Well, um, I, I've always been involved in church music since the age of eight or nine. Um hmm. My, when my, my brother and my parents and I sang in Waterhurst Parish Church Choir, sang mm. as, a, as a little angelic treble, treble, my brother, and probably treble, uh, <laughs> angelic treble, uh, my brother and I and my parents sang in the back row, um, and we went up there every Sunday, choir practice Tuesday night and Friday night, and then Sunday, sometimes two Sunday services in the good old Church of England. Mm. So it's just something I've always done. And then when I was 10, I went away to sing in Chichester Cathedral Choir mm. wow. um, in East Sussex. And that's again, even song every day, three services on Sunday. Wow. Um, choir practice at 1230 in the morning. And wow. 
it's just it's in my it's i've been doing it so long it's virtually in my dna mm. so uh, church music has always um just 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 always been there mm. um uh when i went to college um my college choir at christchurch oxford was the cathedral choir for for the city of oxford wow and so just this one of the top choirs in the country um, you just had right on your doorstep. I walked literally three minutes and could go to Evensong every day and hear this fabulous choir. So wow. it's just something, the church music is just something I've always done. Mm. And it was a very useful way to help pay my way through graduate school. Mm. I, went to the, I did my doctoral work at the University of California, Berkeley. Oh, wow. Well, I, I didn't I, know that. Yeah, that's why that's, I got my, that's where I got my doctorate. Oh, and wow. um, in music composition and as a way to help me um, pay my way through that I was director of music at the First Unitarian Church of Berkeley which oh, you know, of course. You know well, Chris. So, we yeah. have this crazy so for those of you who might not have read all of my search packet that is where <laughs> I also was the minister of religious education um, for a bunch of years right out of seminary um, it was a great beautiful church wow Wow. So when, and when, when did, did you start playing organ? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I started playing organ at, at high school mm-hmm. um, just because it's, you no, know, I was, a, I'm, I was and still am principally a pianist, but mm. organ, it, just, I had a sense that was always going to be a useful skill. And yeah. so, it, so it has proved to be because right. once I left academia, I used to work at um, Franklin and Marshall College. And um, through some very nasty interdepartmental politics, I didn't get tenure. Mm. And I had a two-year-old son and a mortgage to support. So fortunately, there was a church job going at the time, which I was able to fill. And if I hadn't taken the organ at high school, it would have been so much harder. So I kind of feel very lucky that I made that decision at the age of 13 or 14 to learn Mm. to play the organ as well as the piano. The organ is such a fascinating instrument to play to. My aunt, I mean, obviously, I've always had, you know, relationships with organists over the years and all the places that I've worked. But we've also had um, my aunt has played forever, too. And I was talking with her and she was saying that it's really different from every other instrument that you can play because it's both lives in a building. You know, it's built into a building. But that each organ is so different depending on, you know, how it was constructed and all the details of it. Um, how how have you sort of especially loved any of the organs that you've played with and on? or And then how do you find ours that we have at First Church? Um, ours is a very fine machine. It's very much a, a machine of its time, the 1930s. Mm. Um, it's been added to a little bit um there there are various just as there are phases in popular music and classical music um at different times of organ construction different sounds have been more popular and so you as soon as you just hear three or four notes on our organ which is a casino um uh, you know exactly when it was built and what audience it was to please um so i'm i'm making friends with it it, it's it's uh, um, just the way it's constructed uh, it, it, is is for my style of organ playing. It is it, harder to um, it's an it's not a friendly instrument to to mm. learn to play. I love the sound it makes. Yeah, I was very lucky at my previous church, um, which was a Presbyterian church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
Um, I had a four-manual Wix organ, which is a hybrid organ. Um, it's about two-thirds pipe organ and about one-third digital. Oh, wow. Um, with yeah. four manuals and an enormous organ chamber. Um, and there were just, it was a more recent sound. So it was a, a, a style of organ that was designed to be able to play Bach um, and Baroque music and very modern music and also be a recital instrument and um, accompany hymns and the choir extraordinarily well. So I was very fond of that organ. Um, that's probably the one I have played the most. Because in most of the jobs, the churches I've been involved with, I was the director of music, not the organist. So I would nearly always, uh, um, I was Ian to my me, if you know what I mean. Right, 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 right. And so but I had to play the organ and, and had to be able to play it well. So, um, I, Well, I, and that's I, a huge transition. How have you found that being, um, being the you and not the Ian? <laughs> very easy because Ian is so easy to work with yeah oh, um, Ian um, has a very strong sense of his own musicianship and he does it very well and he has just never been bothered by somebody um, having someone that has had the same kind of job as him um, he's he's um, and I think it's I think it's actually probably pretty rare. He's always seen me as an asset, not a not as a competition. Right, and I think mm -hmm. he's really to be commended for that. Yeah, yeah. and Simon, no, you definitely. so you you started you started composing when as as an undergraduate or in high school? Oh, I started composing when I was ten. Oh wow! wow. Yeah, just just choir anthems and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, for, for our local parish church choir and wow. very much in an 18th century style. It was really fun. I, I think when I was 10, I had written an entire mass, all the movements of Kyrie's. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's amazing. And, yeah. So it, it, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. So as a composer, you've always been composing church music. That was always your kind of genre. That was always your uh, focus. No, I, as one of the things I wrote, that's just when I was 10, that's what I knew. Mm. Um, but since then, I, I've written just about everything. I mean, I've written two oh. operas, symphonies, three string quartets. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, I have about 110, about, about, no, about 70 pieces in my, in, in my um, catalog. Wow. And, that, and that's sort of, that's your vocation. Is, is you think of yourself as a composer primarily. Is, is that I how, do, kind of how yes. you see yourself? Yeah. Composer, yeah. conductor. Yeah. yeah. I've conducted a lot of opera when I was in Pennsylvania. Um, and, but, What's the best way to put this? In Europe, <laughs> mu musical training is quite different in Europe than it is in the United States, both oh, really? in and out of academia. In, in Europe, we are very much trained to be generalists. So mm. we are all taught musicology, we are all taught composition, we are all taught an instrument, we are all taught to compose, and you are all taught to conduct. Mm. It's just kind of part of, of the training. I mean, if you look at Benjamin Britten, he was a fantastic pianist and a wonderful conductor. Messiaen was a, made more money as an organist at a church in Paris than he did as a professor or as a composer. Mm. Um, it's just a European tradition. Um, over here, not so much. Um, so um, I consider myself a composer-conductor because mm. I've always done both of those. And In fact, my academic position at Franklin and Marshall College 
um, where actually um, Jim Lanfried's daughter teaches there now, which oh. is an, an interesting, um, huh. <laughs> interesting connection. But my job there was a split position between mm. teaching composition and theory, and, and I ran the choral department and did all the oh. choirs there. Well, so, yeah. But composing is my first love, as it were. And can, are you able to share what you're composing now? Are you working on something now? Um, well, I just finished a big opera. It's a six and a half year project. Oh, wow. Um, uh, yes, it took because I also had to write the words. It, wow. um, it's about an, uh, the sixth, 17th century Native American freedom fighter called Pope. Huh. Wow. Um, who united the Pueblos who did not speak the same language and united them and organized them to rise up against the Spanish in 1680. It's called the Pueblo Revolt. Oh, wow. And they kicked the Spanish out of New Mexico area for 12 years. Mm. Wow. And went back and were able to follow their own religious practices again and speak their own languages again. And it's a remarkable story that nobody outside New Mexico knows. Mm. And so, is it, are we going to put it on somewhere? Or? Well, uh, believe it or not, we were going to put on a scenes program at the church um, in March 2020. Perfect. <laughs> Oh, and, uh, yeah. March 2020. So <laughs> I remember the advertising for that. That's yeah, right. So, yeah. So obviously it went, it went the yeah. way of all, things, of all things pandemic. But fortunately, the singers stayed involved and using the skills I learned during the pandemic to put the Our Soloist in Premiere Pro, we're doing mm-hmm. a virtual performance of it. Oh, oh cool. When is that? that scenes program. So I'm collecting, mm-hmm. c- collecting um, videos from the singers. And then putting them together. And in some ways, it's going to be better. Yeah. Um, because obviously I couldn't afford the full symphony orchestra. So I made a version for two pianos and percussion. Mm. But because we're doing a video, my notation software plays all the orchestral sounds. Wow. So the singers in the virtual version, the singers are actually singing with the full orchestra, which is kind of wow. Cool. Awesome. And let me sneak in. So I think one of the crazy things is a lot of the people listening have no idea how much work all of that is <laughs> so you say it sort of casually like oh i'm gonna get these recordings from the people but yeah you know it just takes so long creating all those videos that you all created and coordinating with all the performers i mean to, to, to create those that must take long. a lot of time i've, I've been it, it, thinking about that since we've been back to live services a little bit and it's just on some level so much easier to do things yeah. live Absolutely, 100% right. And when I'm playing for a singer, like when Kristen and Irina and I do have the Vespers services, my job is to be able to play the notes, but I follow them. Right. But when we were doing the recordings, we had to do it the other way around. Right. Because I had to lay down the track first for them to sing. So we would do a video um, rehearsal and decide how to do it, but they had to follow what I did in the end, Mm. which is just the wrong way around. And yeah. you spend yeah. your entire career training yourself to listen and react to what the soloist does. Mm. And then suddenly you have to do it the other way around. Um, so it just, it was just kind of icky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned the Vesper service quick. So I, I, it has been such a joy to do those with you. You end up doing, you're doing two, two of the three, right? That's right. It's been so beautiful. The one, so you're on with Tuesdays at 12 with Irina, which, I mean, all of them are really wonderful, but there's just something about coming out of 
you know, many minutes of silence with like a Russian alto singing you a lullaby. There's just something that's just yeah. like perfect in the world in those moments. <laughs> like it's just, it's yeah. just such a lovely opportunity for this quiet sort of contemplative thing. And you do such a beautiful job in those services. They've been really, mm. really great. Yeah, we are blessed with great section leaders with wonderful voices and, and, and great performer musicians. They, they just, they don't just sing the notes. They give you the soul of the song. It's, it's, it's really true. We are very lucky. Yeah. And Chuck too. And the Chuck is Wednesday. Of course. Yes. Wednesday nights at six thirty, And then, um, and then our new, uh, soprano Kristen has mm. been really a wonderful, wonderful addition. Yeah. Um, but wait, yeah. so then at what point did you meet Anne? And so Anne is the minister uh, of our church up the street. And so when, how did that happen? Uh, when we were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, before Anne was a minister, she was, um, her training is as a trained operatic coloratura soprano. Um, she has a master's from Boston Conservatory. Really? Yes. Would oh, you? That's fantastic. I had no idea. <laughs> Uh, and then she spent um, oh twenty three years as a voice teacher, but she mm. also did stage directing, and she was artistic director of Lancaster's Opera Company. Yeah, um, mm. I mean Lancaster, for such a tiny town in the middle of Pennsylvania, had one of the oldest continuingly running opera companies. In oh, really? I didn't it know that. Was about that when she took over, it was about sixty three years old. Wow! And we did fully costumed. Um, Operas um, in the original language with orchestra. Mm. Wow. In the Fulton Opera House in, in, in Lancaster, which is America's oldest continuously running opera house. Wow. That's and awesome. So, and she was the stage director for a show, and I, she hired me to come and conduct. That's amazing. And so then at what point, so then you guys got together, and at what point did she become a minister? Well, um, she became. Uh, Director of Music at the Unitarian Church in Lancaster, wow. where she served for 13 years um, as Director of Music. And then um, the congregation expanded, and um, she was asked to... There was a couple of unpleasant resignations um, yeah. at that church, and Anne ended up as the longest-serving member of staff. Wow. And so people would come and ask her questions. Right. about the church. Um, and she said, I do not have the background to answer these questions. So she said, I'll take a class at the local seminary. Uh-oh. Slippery and slope. Yeah. It was yeah. a very slippery <laughs> slope. <laughs> and suddenly with, within the year of taking, and she started her MAR, the, um, and, um, and then within one year of taking one class each semester, she was on a full scholarship. And then four years later, she was ordained. <laughs> and how has that wow. been as a, as a, I've only ever been the partner to a minister while also being a minister. So how's that been being a religious professional and being the partner of a, of a minister? Well, um, in many ways, it's that the advantages are that you have the same schedule. You both right. work weekends. <laughs> and that was, an, having worked in church music for so long, that was a natural rhythm for me. I think it would be much harder if one of you worked Monday, Friday, and right. the other one worked weekends. I think that would be much harder. So it's worked well for us. That's great. It's worked very well. And the only, the downside is that you miss, you miss each other's best work. 
<laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it's true. Um, I got to say, it was really beautiful. So for eight years, I got to work in the church with my wife, both as ministers there, and it was it was really satisfying and just felt so good when I was watching her preach and she was just crushing it, you know, mm-hmm. and I was up there with her and we were building this stuff together. It was really, mm. it was really nice for, for but I imagine it might've been hard. You're all, if you're not careful, you're always working. You're always talking yeah. about work. How yeah. did you carve, how did you carve out that time together? Well, we had, we, so again, like you said, we had the same schedule. So as soon as we were done on Sunday, all the way for the rest of Sunday, and then all day Monday, we both had off mm-hmm. and, and everybody knew not to reach out to us. And, you know, it's also, we had little kids. And so it's, it's easy to uh, be like, do we're done. We also mm-hmm. had sort of zones in the house that we never talked about work in the bedroom at the dinner table. We, we just were really clear about this is not a place we're going to discuss oh, stuff. That makes sense. So we had those that really helped. And we had a set meeting. This is what I tell every everybody who I do marital counseling with too, just, you know, planning their weddings. Mm. We had uh, a set meeting at the beginning of our work week. We still do it now at the end of our work week where we called it the hour of power. And so we knew we had this shot to talk about anything we needed to work wise. So there was a container for it. Okay. And I would just save stuff and I would either write it down or just remember that I needed to check in about it. And we knew that we had that time. So then the rest of time, it was a good challenge to just, you know, be a person, talk about life and know right. that there was going to be a shot at it. Right. So one of the things we've been asking people um, is, is around teachers that have been particularly, you know, resident or who you've been thinking about. And so I wonder if you could tell us about a teacher at some point and, and how they their presence has been sort of alive in you for this pandemic time. Yeah. Um, when I went to high school, um, mm-hmm. someone know what I mean by this. Um, I, I was educated in the private system, which of course in England, because we do everything bass backwards, we call public school. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yes, I went to a private um, school that specialized in music Mm. And um, went to Charterhouse, which is um, in, in the Surrey, very, very uh, tony part of um, of the south of England, which coming from a, a very, very working class background, as I did, was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, my parents both left school at 16, and my grandfather was a very, very staunch far left Labour Party member. Mm. And um, so going into the kind of private school situation was, was a real shock mm. um, just socially, and, um, which, which was very interesting. Um, but there was a wonderful um, director of music there called Bill Llewellyn. Um, and his superpower was that he could get just about anybody to sing. Mm. And he really um, demonstrated how with correct leadership, any musical group is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. I mean, he had, um, it was an all boys school. So if we were going to do any, um, kind of concerts together with a choir, we had to get together with a local girls school. Um, but the school was about 700 boys, I suppose. And within 700 boys that really just wanted to be teenagers and play soccer all day. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a choral society of 75 boys that wow. were willing to turn up and sing for him. And that was just a sheer power of his personality. Oh, wow. 
And we did things like the Verdi Requiem, just Elijah, just enormous pieces of music that most high schools couldn't do. And it was just down to him, I think, and the power, the power of his personality. Um, he sold, he made everyone there love the music. Mm-hmm. And that is something I have always tried to bring into, um, to bring into my music making. Um, and if I have a superpower in music, uh, I hope I've inherited a tenth of, of what he had. Um, because my last church choir is, is a good example at Highland Presbyterian in Lancaster. I had a choir of about 55, mm-hmm. wow. um, which was there. And we sang three pieces every Sunday. Wow. And they just about, but they also, their tradition was that in addition to the regular Sunday services, we also did two, um, like our major musics. Um, wow. We also did a concert at the end of the year of a major choral work. Wow. So these guys worked so hard. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, and many of them weren't, they're not like, we weren't like our choir, which is largely auditioned. Um, half of them were not music readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet because of what the way of doing things that Bill Llewellyn imbued in me, um, we did some amazing concerts. I, my proudest moment, I think, was in 2013, which is Benjamin Britten's centenary year. Mm-hmm. Um, we rehearsed it for seven months, um, but we got th- we did the performance, one of only five performances in the whole of the United States that year um, of the Britain War Requiem. Oh, wow which is just this monumental mm. piece for two orchestras and wow. choirs and kids' choirs and organs. Gosh. We more or less had singers hanging from the rafters. <laughs> wow. Had wow. to take out the front two rows of pews just to fit the orchestra in. Wow. And um, we people came from all over the region. We had 800 people in the audience. It was mm. But so uh, you can draw a direct line from my experience and just watching Bill work and how he got people. And um, if it was wrong, he would never say, well, that was wrong. That was terrible. He would just say, well, that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And this is how to improve it. Try this. And, And so you can draw a direct line from Bill and the way he, without knowing it was mentoring me Mm. to, to, to that performance. Um, Mm. And I think that's why you were kind enough to mention um, how good, how well Ian and I worked with the kids. Yeah. Um, and Ian is just formidable at it. But there's that same direct link. Yeah. Um, kids aren't people that can't do what adults do. Right. Kids are to be nurtured and treated like adults and then respected. And then the sky's the limit. Mm, mm. Yeah. And yeah. um, as as it improves every year with the musical, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's a wonderful so, story. So that was, he was a very very influential person for me. Yeah. So we also so we have this section, the mailbag, in which uh, eventually, once everything is up and flowing, and certainly for season two, which we'll be telling you about a little okay. bit later. Um, please do send any questions to uh, minister at uubelmont.org. Uh, but for the time being, my wife has given us some really good questions. So today, <laughs> uh, from Lauren's mailbag, she asks, what spiritual capacity would it be wise for people to attend to in meeting this time? 
So what spiritual capacity would it be wise for people to attend to in meeting this time? Um, and that's really for, for both of you. I can take a crack at it too, but yeah, I think the three of us should, should, should yeah. have a crack at that one. Shall we, shall you? we start with Simon? Sure. What do you, <laughs> <Thanks for that. laughs> what do you think, Simon? <laughs> well, I well, think of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, the hardest thing about the pandemic for me last year, um, as far, actually, no, it was just the hardest thing, um, and let me just back up and say, um, Anne and I feel very fortunate for our situation during the pandemic. We live out of town, so we didn't feel that we were crowded in with people that might infect us. Mm. We have a house and a separate thing that used to be a garage that we turned into a music studio so that she could work in one house and I could work in my studio and we were separated by space so that my countless practicing never impinged on her Zoom meetings or off whatever. Mm-hmm. So we feel very, very fortunate and just blessed in that way. But the hardest thing about the pandemic was that I hate to be recorded. I no. absolutely <laughs> That's know. a wrinkle. That's a wrinkle. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I-, I can play really very well because – it's a communicative art. You react with the audience. And um, as Beethoven said, to play a wrong note is inconsequential, inconsequential, but to play without passion is unforgivable. Mm. Um, so I would, we would all so much rather hear a performance, um, that was really, really grabbed our attention. And that's yeah. occasional wrong notes. Yeah. What? Recording is exactly the opposite. Right. <laughs> You hear every single wrong note. And some of those pieces, it might have only been three or four minutes long, but they took me 40 or 50 um, takes. Yeah. Wow. Um, so uh, that's all the very, very long pre- preamble to say, mm. I think the spiritual practice that helped me through that, and I think would, would be, I'm taking it out of the pandemic beyond that, is... Self-forgiveness. Mm. Mm. Uh, there was a very interesting article last week on NPR. On I, I, I love Sankar Bhadandam, the, um, the Hidden Brain. It's a oh, great yeah. podcast. It's a great program. And there was a whole program about how do we get better in whatever our task is. And so for so many decades and, and centuries, it's be hard on yourself. Push yourself forward. Push yourself forward. Be hard on mm. yourself. Never forgive yourself. And um, he was saying how research is showing that actually the opposite is true. Yeah. Forgive yourself. Give yourself a break every now and then. Don't let yourself get away with murder. But no, if you're always hard on yourself, you never, you'll never put pen to paper. You'll never put finger on key. You'll yeah. never write a sentence um, in a sermon or, or whatever. Because anyway, so, and as a society, I, I, I think that, that because there's a certain amount of humility in forgiving yourself. It's also a form of decentering yourself, not having yeah. yourself at the center of the universe. Yeah. So, and uh, forgiving and, yourself isn't the same thing as letting yourself off the hook. Right. right. Uh, that's a really good distinct, that's a, that's a much more succinct way of putting it than I could 
Yeah. So, thank you. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> no, I, I like, I, I like that. Hmm. My, my wife has told a story a couple of times that there was a, a ceramics teacher who divided a class in half and told half one half of the class that they were going to be judged for their grade on one perfect pot. So they could take as long as they want, but they're just going to submit one pot hmm. and that's going to be their entire grade. And then the other half of the class, they were going to be judged on the uh, poundage. So their, their task was to just, just make lots and lots of pots. And of course the group that was trying to make the perfect pot uh, and obsessing over creating the one thing just right, just so uh, ended up not remotely getting as good as the group that was just looking to keep working and keep working and keep getting better and just making another pot and another pot and another pot. And I, I totally hear you. The challenge of all of this recording that we've been doing is you can always do it again. You know, you can always do another take and you can always do it. And especially with you all, especially with, with music, so often as we're playing things live, I'm sure you guys, you know, always feel like there's something you could have done better, but you just keep going because it's live mm. and it's interactive and it's beautiful mm -hmm. and it's held in this wider container. But somehow with the recordings, you feel like you need to get it just right. So, no, I, I really appreciate that. What about you, Sam? <laughs> I don't, well, I think, um, let me see. I'm not sure if this is a spiritual capacity, but let me think it through. I think that's something that... Um, we got to try to uh, remember in in this strange limbo world we're living in at the moment, sort of both post COVID and still within COVID is 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 remembering, because something that uh, has sort of been front and center of my attention is that the we're we're both longing for the pre COVID world. We want to go back to how things were before COVID. And at the same time, we're realizing how much of the pre-COVID world shouldn't be gone back to because it was it, it was a, it was a world that was broken in so many different ways, and this interruption in our lives um, has been a good way of of jogging our memories for everything that was wrong with the pre-COVID world, how unjust it was, and um, how precarious it was for many people. And I think that uh, we should try to we should try to um, follow the spiritual practice of remembering what we used to be like as people, what we used to mm. be like as a society, uh, mm. both the good and the bad and being honest about memory and, um, and try, try not to feel so much nostalgia for a world that wasn't as good as we, as we'd like it to have been that, that, that applies in politics that applies in our own individual <laughs> lives. And I think that applies to the COVID um, making memory into a spiritual practice is something actually that I'd like to think about more and read about more, but, uh, that's mm. what that's, that's my, that's my suggestion. I love that. And I feel like that's a lot of, I think you've, you've hit on a lot of the great resignation too. I know I've been mm. just in recent capacity, sort of in a, in a leadership group, um, for ministers helping support folks and reaching out to folks in churches and seeing how everybody's doing. And one of the things, there's a lot of people who are, you know, um, retiring, a lot of people who are taking a break, a lot of people who are resigning. And I think one thing that I've heard a couple different times was basically exactly like you're saying, like really looking at our lives pre-COVID and asking, you know, is that the life that I want to live? Mm. Is that the way I want to work? Is that the way I want to be spending my life? 
And a lot of people have come up with the answer of no, you know, like I don't want to live like that. And I want to figure out a different way of being a different way of being with my partner, a different way of being in the world, a different, so many things. Um, And I think that's part of, part of what's fueling, you know, a lot of this resignation. Yeah. And more generally, I mean, I'm not an economist, but uh, all these, all these problems with, um, you know, supply chain disruption and all the companies that can't find workers. Well, a lot of people have just decided, you know what, I don't want to go back to that horrible old job. I want to do something different with my life. And so we're, we're living in a, in a world where there's a great deal of churn. People are moving on from their, from their old ways of living and their old jobs that they did just because it's what they'd done or because they didn't have other options. And now, COVID has sort of interrupted that and is giving us a chance to 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 reevaluate our lives and think, well, what do we want? Maybe we want something else. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, my my stepson works in the corporate world and um he's saying so many people are being said, Well, no, you've got to come back to work, gotta come back to work, come back to the office, come back to the office. Mm. And um, because it's kind of almost based on middle management fear, how can I control these people if I can't see them? <laughs> and a lot of them are saying, "No, I'm not going to work seventy or eighty hour weeks anymore." Right? I, you know, uh, so then fire me. But no, I'm not going to do it. Right. And right. I think that's mega healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I I really do. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. I think that all ties into my answer. So I think the. Um, you know, I have the opportunity to talk a whole lot about what I think is important in all these between sermons and articles <laughs> or whatever. But I think it's a really interesting question. And I think I come back to there's this um there's this singer, um songwriter Tao, and I think T H A O and she's part of this band, Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, whatever. Anyway, she has this one lyric that is just constantly coming back to me uh, in this time where she sings, I drink only that which makes me thirsty. Hmm. Hmm. And the thing that has kept coming back to me as I've been thinking kind of along the lines of what you're saying, Sam, really thinking deeply about, you know, who we are, how we've been as a church, everything that we do, but also myself as a dad and as a as a partner and just as a human, it's like, what truly feeds me? What truly nourishes me? And how can I do more of that? Cause you know, this is tough. This has been tough. This will continue to be tough. Like we're not done with the tough. And so, you know, I, I feel on some level, like I can be gentle with myself Certainly, I can have a rigorous forgiveness of the many times that I fall short. And when I'm choosing things, when I'm choosing food and activity and how I spend my time and what I'm putting in front of my eyeballs, like I can choose things that actively feed my well-being and my peace. And I can choose things that actively feed uh, my fear and my sort of... um, anger and all these Mm. other things and not like I need to be perfect, but it's just been helpful. It's just been helpful to realize that as much as is out of our control in this moment, there's a whole lot that is, that is within our control Mm -hmm. and to really choose, choose the things that bring me joy and pay attention when I'm experiencing. So like as an example, the other day I was, you know, after I had been, you know, manipulated by my daughter to go build a fort, I was, you know, finished the fort and I was down. I was still kind of had this sense of, 
you know, just a lot of people suffering and it was a little sad. And then my, my eldest son, my 14 year old, it was Halloween coming and he wanted to build, he wanted to be a stack of boxes. He's a hilarious <laughs> yeah. human being. That was his costume. He wanted to be oh. a stack of boxes. That's brilliant. It, it was so brilliant. And so we made cardboard this year and I was like, let's just do that. Cause I know I love building things and he knew he was really happy about it. So, mm-hmm. so we just dug up all of these cardboard boxes and we made little sketches and how are we going to do this and got all the duct tape. And, you know, 30 minutes, an hour into the project, I felt really good because I'm somebody who likes building stuff. Like when we're on vacation, we'll go to the beach and I just start building these sandcastle, mountainous landscape, whatevers. And I'll just do it for hours and hours and hours. And the kids will kind of be there enough to justify a 45-year-old man building sandcastles. But like, Mm. really, it's what (laughs) I want to do. And I find that I'm happiest when I'm building something like that. And so... You know, I thought of that afterwards. I was like, wow, I feel so much better, you know, because I was choosing something, you know, drinking something that actually satiated my thirst as a person. So one of the great gifts of coming back, you know, first to the Vespers, I guess, first to the outside service and then to the Vespers services is the thing I really missed was both sharing silence with people, that kind of that moment where you're connected and you're there together and nobody's needing to say anything or do anything, but also, you know, the, the recorded music has been really beautiful, but there's just something different to feeling it live and being surrounded by it. And like the organ, the organ, just, Mm. you know, you just need it wrapped around you and just kind of soothing anyway. um, Oh, did you have any questions for us? Well, I was, and I, I, for some, for some reason, Sam and I have never had the, I've never had the chance to ask him this question. We, we talked about how, how I came to the States and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. how did you, how did you come this side of the pond? Oh, fellow yeah. Brit. <laughs> well, I came, I came over here to study. I got a one year, um, I was, I spent a year as a special student in quotation marks at Yale university on one of those, um, paid exchange things. Um, and, uh, I, uh, the reason I I really wanted to do it was partly because I wanted to study in America. I mean, obviously that was very exciting, but it was also because uh, my undergraduate degree was in mathematics and at the time I loved mathematics, but I wanted to, uh, uh, jump ship and study poetry. And of course in the British system, that's harder to do because if you do an, an, an undergraduate degree there, you you sort of start in one subject and you end in that same subject. It's a much more right. one-track system. It's more yes, inflexible. Absolutely. And uh, my options, therefore, were limited if I wanted to, to study literature at the, the graduate level. And um, coming to the United States made sense because here people are much more open-minded about that. Oh, you have an undergraduate degree in mathematics. Sure. You know, start a PhD in literature. Why not? Perfect. You know, so, so that's why I came to this country was so I could, so I could apply for graduate school in, um, in, in literature. And that's what I did. That, 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 that's a great reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I've sort of made this country my home. I've been here half my life now, and I'm I'm a permanent resident. How long have you been here? Well, um, I I came for 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 graduate school uh, a long time ago, into back in 2005, and I and I did most of my degree program, and then went off and taught for a few years, and did a few other things, and moved back to the Boston area because I I by, by this stage I sort of dropped my PhD, but I decided I I decided I wanted to to finish it and graduate, so I moved back with the, with the idea of doing that and. So uh, one day I'll graduate. I'll, um, but uh, 
Um, so I've so I've been in the states for quite a long time, and I and uh, I'm eligible to become a citizen now. So so hopefully wow. um, I'll be I'll be a U.S. citizen soon and be able to vote. So wow, yeah, I haven't done that yet. I'm still a Brit set. Yeah, it's so. important if you want to vote. Very important. Yeah, <laughs> right. and now my mother's gone and I have no virtually no family left in England so there's mm. it, it's I think it's probably time for me to stop prevaricating and 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 um just do it like you are so yeah I've been thinking about that a lot recently oh really yeah well let's do it together oh that works for me Perfect. <laughs> we can we can quiz each other on how many people are in Congress and so on, so we can pass the test. That's right. But well, we can. That's a perfect place to end. We can fade yeah. out on some patriotic music. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> <And a football, laughs> right? One new citizen at a time. We <laughs> shall build. But no, it's so good. And thank you so much. I mean, we were talking with Ian the other day, and you know, all of our work changed a lot during the pandemic continues to change and it's all very different, but your work and his work changed entirely. And Mm. I'm so grateful for your flexibility and everything that you did and are continuing to do. I mean, we're still in a very different zone this year and next year as we come back and renegotiate and figure out what music looks like, what programming looks like, what it looks like to sing together. So I'm so grateful for your flexibility and your, your real abundance of gifts. This was super fun to hear from you. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was a great, it was a really fun and enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Simon. Awesome. It was great. All right. All right. Well, thanks a lot. We have a new episode coming soon. We're going to do two uh, seasons a year. So we're going to have a little break. We have a couple more coming and then a little break and then another season in the winter and spring. So, um, so thank you so much to you, Sam, for all the work you're putting into making this happen. It's going to be really fun. Super fascinating folks do keep the mailbag questions coming. Yep. And yeah, thanks so much. Thanks everybody.